I'm Miss B, and I'm starting to miss when my classroom would get so loud that I would count down to five, and then I'd have to be like, I said one, and people would still be talking, and I'd have to stand there with both of my eyebrows raised, sometimes even throw up my hands and be like, come on, guys, I said one. I'm starting to miss that. Um, and you are virtually in Miss B's room. Okay, so in chapters five and six, we got to get like a closer glimpse at Alex's personal relationships with the people that he met on his journey. So we specifically talked to Jan Burris and Ron Franz, and we read that really like heartbreaking chapter about Ron Franz wanting to adopt Alex. And Alex like responded with this long letter about how he had to change his life and it was a little bit devastating. So I asked you, a couple of questions and we are just gonna run through them and I only got six responses so I will just read all of them okay so first question what does Chris do specifically that seems to fall in line with transcendental thought always talking about trees and nature and weird stuff like that on accounts of several people in the canvas often wanted to be alone reject material items and other things like money that is super transcendental um, the solitude and the uh, talking about trees and nature and weird stuff like that. Donates his money, isolates himself from society by living off the land. He lived in a camping trailer with no electricity. Chris does not accept the money that Burroughs tries to give him and is instead offended, which follows the thought that money isn't as important and that physical gifts are not accepted easily. They are non-materialistic. That one was super specific, thank you. He denied the, he denied the monetary help from Burroughs, yes. He eats very little, like said in the beginning, um, but he also gives all of his possessions to one of his friends, so he has no possessions. He also donated his money and left his car. Yep, um, so those things happened earlier in the book, but yeah. So he does all of these things that seem to be like really in line with transcendentalism. He's like rejecting society, he's rejecting material comforts, um, he's living like an almost ascetic life. Do you remember when I showed you that picture of the of the starving monk? He's kind of living like that and in chapter 7 we're gonna see that he like lives his life in that way in other aspects as well like specifically in his personal relationships. Okay so now let's talk about what he does that is like outside of transcendentalism that he's like kind of like walking this line between like being like a transcendental ideal and being regular. Okay, so what does he do that is in opposition? He really seemed to like Bullhead City, which was op oppositional to transcendental thought because Bullhead was full of bourgeois trappings of mainstream America. He had a savings account which goes against his past adventures with money. That is exactly right. Also, um, good quote there. Yeah, it is full of the bourgeois trappings of mainstream America. Not complaining, uh, self not completely self-reliant, doesn't have to rely on, does have to rely on help sometimes, does reconnect with society in some ways, like getting a job. He applied to McDonald's. Yeah, he gets a job at McDonald's, which is like the most, I don't know, like corporate capitalistic thing that he could have possibly done. 
Like, McDonald's is this symbol of, like, American greed. Anyway, he got a job and opened a bank account, which is against the thought of having a traditional job and settling down for a time. Chris seems to enjoy moving into the furnished trailer that has electric sockets at work. Yeah, he was, he did seem to be pretty excited about having electricity. He doesn't bathe. I think Emerson said to take frequent cold baths. He also makes a lot of, makes a lot of relationships with people and lives with people for quite a while before becoming nomadic again. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think it was Thoreau that was talking about the baths. But yeah, he's gross, right? Um, on hearing that he was like smelly, it's like, oh. I mean, of course he was because he was living on the streets, but. Okay. Now let's talk about how Chris feels about solitude in society. We have our first answer. I believe that Chris believes that society is only good when he needs it. Probably believes that solitude is a way to discover himself and better himself, but he still wants to have important connections with people. Yeah, so he's like having these like really significant interpersonal connections while at the same time being like, that's a waste of time. So he's kind of like living in this like contradictory space. Chris doesn't seem to love solitude. He wants to interact with people, but he does not like society and society's ideas of success or societal norms. And then we have one person who succinctly says he doesn't mind it too much. Based on how far he lived from an already solitude town in the Oh My God Hot Springs, he was a person that liked solitude. However, he seems to go away from this if he meets a good friend or a person he can get along with, such as Franz. When he talked about the idiocy of mainstream American life, it suggests that he does not like society and is against the type of life in society. Along with this, it talks about how he had escaped a lot of the intimate relationships and getting too close to other people. It suggests that Alex mainly practiced and tried to stay by solitude and away from most of society. Yeah, I like that you like brought up the physical location of like, he has this like teeny tiny encampment of hippies and he still lives outside of it. So it's like he wants to be near society. He wants to look at it. He wants to be able to come in when he wants, but he doesn't want to be a part of it. Okay. Not often, but sometimes he enjoys social relationships, but primarily he enjoys solitude. I think that's a really succinct way to talk about that as well. He doesn't like it. He thinks that it's corrupt in some aspects, especially the consumerism part of society. Yes, I think that's absolutely fair as well. You guys really honed in on this one, that he's like interested in both at the same time in really interesting ways. Okay, and now my favorite question, what is bringing you joy? So in... Chapter six, um, Chris talks to Ronald Franz about having to like get joy outside of um, interpersonal relationships. And I think that that's something that we have to be looking at doing right now too, because we can't really participate in our interpersonal relationships as fully as we might like. Um, like I can email you guys and I can talk on the phone to my mom, but really the face-to-face -face interactions I'm having on a regular basis are with my cats. And I think they're starting to get sick of me. Okay, so what's bringing you guys joy? First person. Honestly, spent the weekend waiting for the podcast. I really enjoy it. Um, I like learning this, which surprised me because I normally don't learn well like this. But also, I finished the Gravity Falls series recently, and I really love that show. I've read a million books, and I haven't been able to do that in forever, and I finally enjoyed a book for the first time in forever. That is awesome. Yeah, I typically, like, I like to have, like, a conversation. Um, I think that's actually why I landed on podcast as, like, the medium that I wanted to do this with, because I was 
I would be able to like pull in some of your responses and like talk to you about them in a way. Obviously it's not ideal and I work better face to face too, but this is what we've got. Um, so I'm glad that it's working and I also love Gravity Falls. That show is hilarious and wonderful and maybe I'll rewatch it now. It's not like I uh, don't have enough time. Okay, next person says it's rough right now and joy is a fleeting concept. I know. I keep like flipping back and forth between being okay and like being like really angry or panicky about like what's happening. Um, I really, 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 really miss you guys a whole lot. And I think that's the hardest part for me is I want to go back to work. Like I, I love a break, but I love a break when it's a break and not like a demand. Um, so I know it's really tough right now for me too. But that's another part of the reason why I wanted to do this. So you know that at least me, I'm in the same boat as you two, and it's going to be okay. Next person says that Animal Crossing is bringing them joy. That's wonderful. Spending more time with my family and talking with my friends. That's also really good. But Chris would be like, look in other places. Your interpersonal relationships find joy elsewhere. When people around me are happy, I feel joy. That's true. That's interpersonal relationships again. Honestly, I'm not sure. Some of my friends are still texting me like the world's not on fire, so I like that. Me too. Like, I seriously had to turn off, um, or I had to uninstall my Messenger app a couple of days ago because everybody was, like, panicking me, and they were, like, giving me, like, all of their melodrama, and they were, like, so, oh, God, they were just, like, really bringing me down. So I was, like, I'm gonna turn this off for the day and just, like, do work, read my book, and hang out, and it was ideal. Um, so now I'm really only talking to people who are not interested in, um, spreading panic and fear because I am exhausted by it. I'm utterly exhausted. Like, I'm staying home. I'm doing everything I need to to make sure that I'm safe and the people around me are safe. I also don't need to be worrying about things that are outside of my control. Okay, and now it's bringing me joy. Um, I went for a walk, a really very long walk. I walked from my house to UNM which I've done maybe like once before in the past. It's not like crazy long, but it's like longer than you would just choose to do. It's like a more reasonable bike ride. Um, and it was, I, it was Monday. It was Monday, like mid morning ish. And I took this walk and I was, um, thinking about, I have this friend, her name was Gabby. I mean, her name is still Gabby. We're just not friends anymore. That's sad. It's okay. People change. And I was talking to her, and she was, like, talking to me about the experience of getting a bike. And she was like, yeah, when you're, like, biking around, you notice so many things that you wouldn't notice if you're driving or walking. So when I was walking, I was trying to notice things that maybe I hadn't seen um, driving that way before. Because it was a way that I've driven many, many times. And I was looking around, and I took some pictures. And I think the thing that I noticed that brought me the most joy is the trees which is super transcendental. But I was looking specifically at like how old the trees were. Like the part of Albuquerque that I live in is fairly old. Like the house that I'm sitting in right now was built in the 1950s. So we've got like a lot of trees in the Knob Hill area that are like crazy, crazy old. Um, and I think like looking at that, at like the history of my town made me feel a little bit safer and a little bit more comfortable because like how many international catastrophes have these trees existed through? 
that was my line of thinking and just like looking around and seeing like man there were so many people that were out for walks and some people were weird and rude and didn't say hello to me but others did um and it was kind of like nice and relaxing to do something that was like a little bit outside of the ordinary but not something that was like that I wouldn't do if this hadn't happened, if that makes sense. So that's where I got my joy last week. Um, okay. So we're going to be reading chapter seven. And in chapter seven, we're going to take a closer look at Chris's interpersonal relationships. And I think that this is a good opportunity to reflect on our own interpersonal relationships and how much or how little they mean to us now that we are essentially confined to our houses. Okay, chapter 7 begins on page 61, and this one is also called Carthage. And that's the town in South Dakota where he was living with Wayne Westerberg and working on the farm. That's just the cats, don't worry about that. Chapter 7, Carthage. There were some books. One was Pilgrim's Progress, about a man that left his family. It didn't say why. I read considerable in it now and then. The statement was interesting but tough. Mark Twain, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. It is true that many creative people fail to make mature personal relationships, and some are extremely isolated. It is also true that, in some instances, trauma, in the shape of early separation or bereavement, has steered the potentially creative person toward developing aspects of his personality which can find fulfillment in comparative isolation. But this does not mean that solitary creative pursuits are themselves pathological. Avoidance behavior is a response designed to protect the infant from behavioral disorganization. If we transfer transfer this concept to adult life, we can see that an avoidant infant might very well develop into a person whose principal need was to find some kind of meaning and order in life, which was not entirely or even chiefly dependent upon interpersonal relationships. Anthony Storr, Solitude, A Return to the Self. Okay. So... Those two things taken together, I think we're gonna we're about to like delve into some information on Chris's past and why he's seeking joy and order outside of personal relationships. So I think those are the things that we're gonna be looking for in this chapter. The big John Deere 8020 squats silently in the canted evening light, a long way from anywhere, surrounded by a half-mode field of South Dakota Milo. I'm gonna assume Milo. Or Milo? I don't know. I should have looked that up. I plan. I was like, I'm going to look and see if there's any words that I don't know. I'm going to assume it's a type of grain. Wayne Westerberg's muddy sneakers protrude from the maw of the combine, as if the machine were in the process of swallowing him whole, an overgrown metal reptile digesting its prey. Hand me that goddamn wrench, will you? An angry, muffled voice demands from deep within the machine's innards. Or are you guys too busy standing around with your hands in your goddamn pockets to be of any use? The combine is broken down for the third time in as many days, and Westerberg is frantically trying to replace a hard-to-reach bushing before night nightfall. An hour later, he emerges, smeared with grease and chaff, but successful. Sorry about snapping like that, Westerberg apologizes. 
We've been working too many 18-hour days. I guess I'm getting a little snarly at being so late in the season and all and us being shorthanded besides. We was counting on Alex to be back at work by now. Fifty days have gone by since McCandless's body was discovered in Alaska on the Stampede Trail. Seven months earlier, on a frosty March afternoon, McCandless had ambled into the office at the Carthage Grain Elevator and announced that he was ready to go to work. There we were, ringing up the morning's tickets, remembers Westerberg, and in walks Alex with a big old backpack slung over his shoulder. He told Westerberg he planned on staying until April 15th, just long enough to put together a grub stake. He needed to buy a pile of new gear, he explained, because he was going to Alaska. McCandless promised to come back to South Dakota in time to help with the autumn harvest, but he wanted to be in Fairbanks by the end of April in order to squeeze in as much time as possible up north before his return. During those four weeks in Carthage, McCandless worked hard, doing dirty, tedious jobs that nobody else wanted to tackle. Mucking out warehouses, exterminating vermin, painting, scything weeds. At one point, to reward McCandless with a task that involved slightly more skill, Westerberg attempted to teach him to operate a front-end loader. Alex hadn't been around machinery much, Westerberg says with a shake of his head. And it was pretty comical to watch him try to get the hang of the clutch in all those levers. He definitely wasn't what you'd call mechanically minded. Nor was McCandless endowed with a sure fit of common sense. Many who knew him have commented, unbidden, that he seemed to have great difficulty seeing the trees, as it were, for the forest. Alex wasn't a total space cadet or anything, says Westerberg, don't get me wrong, but there were gaps in his thinking. I remember once I went over to the house, walked into the kitchen, and noticed a god-awful stink. I mean, it smelled really nasty in there. I opened the microwave, and the bottom was filled with rancid grease. Alex had been using it to cook chicken, and it never occurred to him that the grease had to drain somewhere. It wasn't that he was too lazy to clean it up. Alex always kept things real neat and orderly. It was just that he hadn't noticed the grease. Soon after McCandless returned to Carthage that spring, Westerberg introduced him to his longtime on-again, off-again girlfriend, Gail Bora, a petite, sad-eyed woman, as slight as a heron and delicate, with delicate features and long blonde hair. Thirty-five years old, divorced, a mother of two teenage children, she quickly became close to McCandless. He was kind of shy at first, says Bora. He acted like it was hard for him to be around people. I just figured that was because he'd spent so much time by himself. I had Alex over to the house for supper just about every night, Bora continues. He was a big eater, never left any food on his plate. On his plate, Never. He was a good cook, too. Sometimes he'd have me over to Wayne's place and fix supper for everybody. Cooked a lot of rice. You'd think he'd get tired of it, but he never did. Said he would live for a month on nothing but 25 pounds of rice. Alex talked a lot when we got together, Bora recalls. Serious stuff, like he was bearing his soul, kind of. He said he could tell me things he couldn't tell the others. You could see something was gnawing at him. It was pretty obvious he didn't get along with his family, but he never said much about any of them except Corinne, his little sister. He said they were pretty close, said she was beautiful, and when she walked down the street, guys would turn their heads and stare. Westerberg, for his part, didn't concern himself with the Canlis's family problems. Whatever reason he had for being pissed off, I figured it must have been a good one. Now that he's dead, though, I don't know anymore. If Alex was here right now, I'd be tempted to chew him out good. What the hell were you thinking not speaking to your family for all that time, treating them like dirt? One of the kids that works for me, fuck, he ain't even got any goddamn parents, but you don't hear him bitching. Whatever the deal was with Alex's family, I guarantee you I've seen a lot worse. Knowing Alex, I think he must have got stuck on something that happened between him and his dad and couldn't leave it be. 
Westerberg's latter conjecture, as it turned out, was a fairly astute analysis of the relationship between Chris and Walt McCandless. Oh, hey, here we go, talking about uh, Chris's family. My prediction was correct. Both father and son were stubborn and high-strung. Given Walt's need to exert control and Chris's extravagantly independent nature, polarization was inevitable. Chris submitted to Walt's authority through high school and college to a surprising degree, but the boy raged inwardly all the while. He brooded at length over what he perceived to be his father's moral shortcomings, the hypocrisy of his parents' lifestyle, the tyranny of their conditional love. Eventually, Chris rebelled, and when he finally did, it was with characteristic immoderation. Shortly before he disappeared, Chris complained to Corinne that their parents' behavior was so irrational, so oppressive, disrespectful, and insulting that I finally passed my breaking point. He went on. Since they won't ever take me seriously, for a few months after graduation, I'm going to let them think they are right. I'm going to let them think I'm coming around to see their, their side of things and that our relationship is stabilizing. And then, once the time is right, with one abrupt, swift action, I'm going to completely knock them out of my life. I'm going to divorce them as my parents once and for all and never speak to either of those idiots again as long as I live. I'll be through with them once and for all, forever. The chill Westerberg sensed between Alex and his parents stood in marked contrast to the warmth the canvas exhibited in Carthage. Outgoing and extremely personable when the spirit moved him, he charmed a lot of folks. There was mail waiting for him when he arrived back in South Dakota, correspondence from people he'd met on the road, including what Westerberg remembers as Letters from a girl who had a big crush on him, someone he'd gotten to know in some Timbuktu, some campground, I think. But McCandless never mentioned any ro romantic entanglements to either Westerberg or Bora. I don't recollect Alex ever talking about any girlfriends, says Westerberg. Although a couple of times he mentioned wanting to get married and have a family someday. You could tell he didn't take relationships lightly. He wasn't the kind of guy who would go out and pick up girls just to get laid. It was clear to Bora, too, that McCandless hadn't spent much time cruising singles bars. One night, a bunch of us went out to a bar over in Madison, says Bora. It was hard to get him out on the dance floor, but once he was out there, he wouldn't sit down. We had a blast. After Alex died and all, Corinne told me that as far as she knew, I was, the, I was one of the only girls he ever went dancing with. In high school, McCandless had enjoyed a close rapport with two or three members of the opposite sex, and Corinne recalls one instance when he got drunk and tried to bring a girl up to his bedroom in the middle of the night. They made so much noise stumbling up the stairs that Billy was awakened and sent the girl home. But there's little, little evidence that he was sexually active as a teenager, and even less to suggest that he slept with any woman after graduating from high school. Nor for, that matter, nor for that matter is there any evidence that he was ever sexually intimate with a man. It seems that McCandless was drawn to women but remained largely or entirely celibate, as chaste as a monk. Chastity and moral purity were qualities McCandless mulled over long and often. Indeed, one of the books found in the bus with his remains was a collection of stories that included Tolstoy's The Kreutzer Sonata, in which the nobleman turned ascetic denounces the demands of the flesh. Several such passages are starred and highlighted in the dog-eared text, the margins filled with cryptic notes printed in McCandless's distinctive hand, and in the chapter on higher laws in Thoreau's Walden, a copy which was also discovered in the bus. McCandless circled, chastity is the flowering of man, and what are called genius, heroism, holiness, and the like are but various fruits which succeed it. We Americans are titillated by sex, obsessed by it, horrified by it. When an apparently healthy person, especially a healthy young man, elects to forego the enticements of the flesh, it shocks us, and we leer, 
suspicions are aroused. McCandless's apparent sexual innocence, however, is a corollary of a personality type that our culture purports to admire, at least in the case of its most famous adherents. His ambivalence towards sex echoes that of celebrated others who embraced the wilderness with single-minded passion. Thoreau, who was a lifelong virgin, and and the naturalist John Muir, most prominently to say nothing of the countless lesser-known pilgrims, seekers, misfits, and adventurers. Like not a few of those seduced by the wild, McCandless seems to have driven, have been driven by a variety of lust that supplanted sexual desire. His yearning, in a sense, was too powerful to be quenched by human contact. McCandless may have been tempted by the succor offered by women, but it paled beside the prospect of rough congress with nature, with the cosmos itself, and thus he was drawn north, to Alaska. McCandless assured both Westerberg and Bora that when his northern sojourn was over, he would return to South Dakota, at least for the fall. After that, it would depend. I got the impression that this Alaska escapade was going to be his last big adventure, Westerberg recalls, and that he wanted to settle down some. He said he was going to write a book about his travels. He liked Carthage. With his education, nobody thought he was going to work at a goddamn grain elevator for the rest of his life, but he definitely intended to come back here for a while, to help us out at the elevator, figure out what he was going to do next. That spring, however, McCandless's sights were fixed unflinchingly on Alaska. He talked about the trip at every opportunity. He sought out experienced hunters around the town and asked them for tips about stalking game, dressing animals, curing meat. Bora drove him to the Kmart in Mitchell to shop for some last pieces of gear. By mid-April, Westerberg was both short-handed and very busy, so he asked McCandless to postpone his departure and work a week or two longer. McCandless wouldn't even consider it. Once Alex made his mind up about something, there was no changing it, Westerberg laments. I even offered to buy him a plane ticket to Fairbanks, which would have let him work an extra ten days and still get to Alaska by the end of April, but he said, no, I want to hitch north. Flying would be cheating. It would wreck the whole trip. Two nights before McCandless was scheduled to head north, Mary Westerberg, Wayne's mother, invited him to her, to her house for dinner. My mom doesn't like a lot of my hired help, Westerberg says, and she wasn't real enthusiastic about meeting Alex either, but I kept bugging her, telling her, you gotta meet this kid, and so she finally had him over for supper. They hit it off immediately. The two of them talked nonstop for five hours. Cats, get out of here. Sorry. <clears throat> they talked nonstop for five hours. There was something fascinating about him, explains Mrs. Westerberg, seated at the polished walnut table where McCandless dined that night. Alex struck me as much older than 24. Everything I said, he'd demand to know more about what I meant, about why I thought this way or that. He was so hungry to learn about things. Like most of us, he was the sort of person who insisted on living out his beliefs. We talked for hours about books. There aren't that many people in Carthage who like to talk about books. He went on and on about Mark Twain. Gosh, he was fun to visit with. I didn't want the night to end. He was greatly looking forward to seeing him again in the fall. I was greatly looking forward to seeing him again in this, this fall. I can't get him out of my mind. I keep picturing his face. He sat in that same chair you're sitting in now. Considering that I only spend a few hours in Alex's company, it amazes me how much I'm bothered by his death. On McCandless's final night in Carthage, he partied hard at the cabaret with Westerberg's crew. The Jack Daniels flowed freely. To everyone's surprise, McCandless sat down at the piano, 
She'd never mentioned he knew how to play and started pounding out honky-tonk country tunes, then ragtime, then Tony Bennett numbers. He wasn't merely a drunk inflicting his delusions of talent on a captive audience. Alex, says Gail Bora, could really play. I mean, he was good. We were all blown away by it. On the morning of April 15th, everybody gathered at the elevator to see McCann was off. His pack was heavy. He had approximately $1,000 tucked in his boot. He left his journal and photo album with Westerberg for safekeeping and gave him the leather belt he'd made in the desert. Alex used to sit at the bar in the cabaret and read that belt for hours on end, like he was translating hieroglyphics for us. Each picture he'd carved into the leather had a long story behind it. When McCandless hugged Bora goodbye, he says, she says, I noticed he was crying. That frightened me. He wasn't planning on being gone all that long. I figured he wouldn't have been crying unless he intended to take some big risks and knew he might not be coming back. That's when I started to have a bad feeling that we wouldn't never see Alex again. The big tractor's semi-trailer rig was idling out front. Rod Wolf, one of Westerberg's employees, needed to haul a load of sunflower seeds to Inderlin, North Dakota, and had agreed to drive McCandless to Interstate 94. When I let him off, he had that big damn machete hanging off his shoulder, Wolf says. I thought, geez, nobody's going to pick him up when they see that thing. But I didn't say nothing about it. I just shook his hand, wished him luck, and told him he'd better write. The canvas did. A week later, Westerberg received a terse card with a Montana postmark. April 18th. Arrived in Whitefish this morning on a freight train. I am making good time. Today I will jump the border and turn north for Alaska. Give my regards to everyone. Take care. Alex. Then, in early May, Westerberg received another postcard, this one from Alaska, with a photo of a polar bear on the front. It was postmarked April 27th, 1992. Greetings from Fairbanks, it reads. This is the last you shall hear from me, Wayne. Arrived here two days ago. It was very difficult to catch rides in the Yukon Territory, but I finally got here. Please return all mail I received to the sender. It might be a very long time before I return south. If this adventure proves fatal and you don't ever hear from me again... I want you to know you're a great man. I now walk into the wild. Alex. On the same date, McCandless sent a card bearing a similar message to Jan Burris and Bob. Hey guys, this is the last communication you shall receive from me. I now walk out to live amongst the wild. Take care. It was great knowing you. Alexander. Okay. So I have a couple of questions for you about this chapter. I think we get like a much closer glimpse into Alex's psychology here, just like the epigraphs at the beginning are talking about, like, I think the, that second one is from a, um, some kind of like psychological text that it's not like a regular one of, um, like the epigraphs that are just coming out of Chris's books. It's, um... Yeah, it's out of, like, a different text. That's one that I think Krakauer added to show us something about um, Chris's mental state. So my question for you is, do you think that he was mentally well? And what evidence do you have to support that theory? Like, do you think that he was just maybe, like, a little bit... Um, I'm looking for a word here. Like, kind of just an oddball, but mostly okay? Or do you think that there was something, like, going on psychologically that maybe if he'd received treatment, he wouldn't be living this way? Um, so I want that question, and I want you to support your answer with some evidence. And then I'm going to reiterate um, the question that I asked you when I introduced this book. 
do you like Chris? Why or why not? So if you met this guy, would you like him? Yes or no and why?